Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Welcome to another Traits Takeover of PreserveCast. I'm your host, Natalie Hinshaw, and Director of Historic Trades with Preservation Maryland. With me, I have Hector Berdecia Hernandez. He is the Director General of the Conservation Center of Puerto Rico. Hector, welcome. Hi, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for being on. Hector, we have a partnership with Preservation Maryland and the campaign in Sencor. So we're definitely going to dive into that and what we're doing later. But we like to start out getting to know our guests. Can you tell us about your background and upbringing and what got you interested in history and preservation? So I'm from Puerto Rico. I live in Puerto Rico. Since I was young, I realized I, I like to draw. I like the arts sector for some reason. So I, from, from a young age, I was exposed to museums, galleries, you know, art. Um, and uh, when I was during my middle high school in Puerto Rico, we have something that is called this specialized school. Um, when we are exposed and, and get trained in different, you know, fine arts uh, courses. So from a young age, and I would say from when I was 14, 15 years old, I knew I wanted to be an architect or or at least to study architecture. And I know that there were architects who dealt with history buildings. Um, I would, I've been always fascinated also by history. And I remember when I was younger, I wanted to be an archaeologist. So I came from, from being an archaeologist, I decided to go to architecture. But then um, when I went to the School of Architecture at the University of Puerto Rico, I decided to do a double major in history. And then from, from there, I, I graduated and, and went to uh, the History Preservation Program at Penn, University of Pennsylvania. And at Penn and from my you know, previous studies, I decided that conservation as, you know, art conservation and, and the conservation world was a right fit for me. I really enjoyed that. And I, I went to Penn and I specialized in, and became an architectural conservator. Right. That's really interesting, too. I'd love to get into what distinguishes it. And mm -hmm. at Penn, did you go to the Historic Preservation Master's program or was there something yeah. specific? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I did my two years master there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah. How did you, like, what was the training there for conservation and what distinguishes conservation from preservation? Sure. So uh, there's a fine line between, you know, both terms in, 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 in history preservation is a, uh, why it's a multidisciplinary, I think, discipline or, or field, if that's the right word. And um, you have a lot of people that work in the historic preservation field that are related to policy, planning, history, you know, history research, and a lot of people working with in, in architecture with design. Um, so they're really 
different uh, subsections. And in Penn, I learned that there was a thing called architectural conservation. And the difference is that we, the, the architectural conservator works as a, mostly as a consultant for architects and is an intermediate figure between an architect and an art conservator. And we usually have a training in chemistry. We have a training, uh, a little bit of trades. We we do, we, we get trained to see a lot of things that architects don't see, but we also see a lot of things that art conservators can do because of the scale of the world. We see the building as an object. Know, that needs to be treated, it needs to be restored. And um, our approach is really specific and highly technical. And usually when we're dealing with tradespeople, usually the architectural conservator works hand in hand with tradespeople on how to perform treatment or intervene in a historic building. You know, what are the specs, how we can work with different materials, how we 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 collaborate. So, so it's really a collaborative work but there, and, and, and I can tell a little bit of history of how that figure was developed in the 1970s in the U.S. Um, but we're an intermediate between an architect and an art concert. That's okay. So uh, maybe to put in an example, too, I worked on a project where I was the tradesperson um, paint stripping a plaster freeze. And, you know, with the dental picks and the paint stripper would the role of the architectural conservator would that be somebody who helped decide on the paint stripper to use based on the composition mm-hmm. of the plaster and say okay yeah. as yeah, opposed yeah. to the person there with the the pick doing this yeah, yeah okay yeah a lot of the decision making process that we do in architectural conservation is based on lab analysis and what type of analysis that we need to do what are the right questions to ask before doing performing any kind of treatment or intervention in a historic building. Um, it could be for timber, it could be for wood. Usually architectural conservators, a lot of them, we, we work on a range, broad range of materials, but some of us really specialize in, in specific um, materials. For example, I know architectural conservators that uh, specialize in architectural finishes, mural painting, mosaics, you know, um, others, specializing timber, others specializing masonry. So there are a variety of even sub-specialties within architectural conservation. Um, still, we collaborate also not only with architects, trades people, and, you know, engineers, and everyone that works in, sorry, you know, in, in construction world, but also we collaborate with conservators from the museum's world. And, for example, sometimes we found um wallpapers in a historic building. And sometimes we do consulting with a paper conservator or the same with textiles conservator, paintings conservators, and, and other specialties within the art conservation world to uh restore, to preserve specific features of the building. So we have the capability of having conversations with I think both sides of the, the aisle um, in terms of what we can do, how to do it, you know, and how to uh, restore properly, you know, or provide at least the most beneficial advice for both the clients and 
you know, when the professional is involved in the project. Do you have a specialty? Well, my specialty, or or at least something that I've been, I, I love, is mortars and concrete. Mortars and historic concrete that has been part of. But I'm also interested in other areas such as archaeological field. Um, and also preventive conservation. But I will say if I have to choose a specialty, definitely masonry. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. It's very interesting, I think. Um, so what was your first project as an architectural conservator? Was it after you got to UPenn or did you get to work in Puerto Rico on something? So uh, when I was at Penn, I was really exposed to like a little bit of, of those uh, projects. I remember in one of my courses, we did a conditions assessment for a historic vault in, in, in one of the oldest cemeteries in Philadelphia. Um, my thesis, which I choose my own topic and everything, it was uh, a con- fully conditions assessment of an exposed unpainted plaster in a historic church in Puerto Rico, a modern sort of building for 1960s. And uh, I had to do all the chemical analysis, the lab analysis for everything. So I can recommend, you know, the, the best ways to remove any kind of paintings, consolidants, you, you know, to consolidate the whole um, plaster work and exterior plaster work, which is all cement base. So I think from pen. I got a great grasp of experience. I, I believe in that's I one I choose a pen because I, I feel that it was really more practical another another programs in the US in, in terms of space conservation. Um, but after I graduated, I been working on different projects. For example, one of them was uh, uh, the historic uh on the on the historic interior cupola of the capital of Puerto Rico. We did a full condition assessment, we did testing, um we helped setting up the scope of work for the whole project. At the Normandy Hotel also, which is a 1940s historic hotel in Puerto Rico, we've been doing like work with historic plaster ceilings. They are collapsed, and we are basically setting up a huge project to restore those ceilings in 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 for the restoration of the hotel. So I, I've been involved with architectural conservation projects for a while, but also as director general of the Sencor, I have been exposed to other kinds of projects related to collections care, to art conservation, um, and also running the day at day of a full nonprofit institution. So I, I've been trying to get both sides of you know experience with that. Yeah. Did you uh did you ever anticipate that you would also be a professional juggler <laughs> of all these different things? <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. In uh when I graduated from Penn, I I never thought I would be Working, you know, as as a CEO of a nonprofit, I I was envisioning myself sitting down um, in a scaffolding doing just conservation work and preservation and dealing with buildings. But I never in my life thought that I will I will be doing what I'm doing right now. 
Well, yeah, let's let's talk then kind of about the birth of Sencor and how that did end up happening. So after yeah, grad school, yeah. you were working. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's interesting because I graduated in 2020. So it was the middle of the pandemic. And I even, I didn't graduate in, in spring of 2020 because I, I didn't finish my thesis. All the labs at the university were closed. So I was, I needed to do some testing, you know, to, so story, long short story. I end up returning to Puerto Rico because the other thing is that at that time there were a lot of people they been been um a lot of firms were closing, uh, a lot of people being laid. Uh so so it was a complicated panorama at the time. And I realized, hey, I should maybe I should go back to Puerto Rico to, you know, work on 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 this small project that current boss like he 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 was looking for someone to start maybe a trades program in Puerto Rico at the time and I I said hey um this might be a fun project maybe six months or something um and then I could get back to the U.S. and, and get training that I wanted it eventually never happened uh that small project within the government of Puerto Rico it 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 became a fully functioning nonprofit, uh, independent nonprofit, and and Sencor was born from that project. And originally, it was more related to traditional trades and how to, you know, move that. But at the end, we realized that it it needed to be a bigger project than just historic building trades. Um, and then Sencor was born. Singapore was born from the need after, especially after Hurricane Maria, Irma, earthquakes, and all these natural disasters that had been happening in Puerto Rico for the past six and five years, on the need of a nonprofit institution that can promote discussion and research and uh, uh, an understanding of our cultural heritage, but also that can promote the technical aspects of future buildings for collections for archaeology. And 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 we have to figure, we have to consider the specific context of Puerto Rico. You know, in Puerto Rico, we don't have a lot of people that are trained. Um, we need a lot of people related to the trades uh, to work on the reconstruction process of the hurricanes. We need um, uh, qualified architects to perform work. We need more conservators to work on the museums. Right now, the museum sector in Puerto Rico has been challenging for them to find local conservators to perform work on their collections. So we have a lot of challenges going on in all sectors related to cultural heritage. And we, we see Sencor as a possibility to collaborate, to connect local institutions with international and national, you know, U.S.-based institutions um, to promote resources, because not only the need of, of people, you know, to perform work, but also how we find resources, economic resources, to homeowners, property owners, to specific nonprofit organizations that 
don't have the the money or the means to you know restore their their headquarters which are usually historic buildings so it's a challenge and we've been trying for the past few three years we we now got on our third year uh, as Sancor was born in September 1st um, to at least to develop a highly sustainable institution and 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 part of what how we did it is that we we not only receive funding from donations and grants but also we perform technical services we get hired we get contract by private owners local governments state governments to perform work on and and do any kind of project related to research preservation and um we have so, so from the beginning we've been thinking about how to make not only to help and assist within the needs of Puerto Rico, but also how to make this a sustainable thing. Um, yeah. And and for that, uh Sencor, we had at least so far we have been successful on. Right. So you brought this point up to the landscape of what currently exists in Puerto Rico. And it sounds like Sencor is fitting a need that wasn't there. So for one, is that accurate? And then two, what really was that landscape of training and education for anybody that wanted to get into this field in Puerto Rico? What was there, if anything? Well, um, from one of the reasons I left Puerto Rico to get trained and educated in UPenn was because we didn't have, until really recently, a master's program for people interested in, in doing historic preservation. So um that was one of the of the of the issues. The second thing is that we don't have a lot of trades um we don't have a lot of trades training um related to historic buildings. Actually we don't have none. I will I can tell you that. We have vocational programs that focus on more contemporary work. And I will tell you, for example, woodworkers and carpenters, a majority of those programs, what is happening right now in Puerto Rico, is that they were trained to work only on PVC as a material. So if you find a woodworker right now in Puerto Rico, that they got training or they're getting trained or whatever, they only work on PVC for kitchen cabinets or for furniture or it's, so it's really complex because the 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 the, the demand oh for the services you know for for the market demands is just furniture using pvc and but you know something is furniture and we know that architectural woodworking architectural carpentry that's another Field, a completely different field. Very different. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and so so that's the situation right now. We got a lot of people that are being trained in, um, and they're doing a lot of work with PVC. Not a lot of conscience about work, working with wood and traditional trades. And and I will say this: this is not only part of. You know, this is not a problem related to Puerto Rico. This is an ongoing problem also in the Caribbean. 
is in the, Car in the Caribbean region as general. Um, in the US Virgin Islands, for example, we have been collaborating with them in some projects and stuff, and they have they face the same challenge. They can't find trade people. Um, Dominican Republic, they're doing the same. Cuba, so it's a regional concern, and I know it's a worldwide concern about this. Um, so yeah, that's part of what we're trying to do is not only setting up a program for, for them in collaboration with other institutions of, of how to train the next generation of architectural woodworkers, architectural carpenters, people who can lay bricks, you know, the masons that we need. We have a lot of bricks, historic buildings in brick in Puerto Rico, but also to sit down with the current key players in the industry, the construction industry, and having a conversation, an honest conversation about what we're doing, how we can change, how we can improve, because that's the only way that we can, um, you know, change and, 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 and be a catalyst for change, you know, and, 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 and see what possible collaborations are, what resources are, and and I feel sometimes we failed in in that sense because you know the the, the cultural heritage sector we often wants to work only within our own people but I think the key for anything is just to cross out to other fields and start having a conversation and having and and, and doing kind of outreach to them and see how we can collaborate to uh, you know advance the to any kind of situation and overcome any challenge um we're doing that yeah yeah totally agree we can talk about some of that that how to towards the end i might i'm gonna lay down some of the obvious mm -hmm. <laughs> just so everybody's on the same page but puerto rico most people are spanish as first language speakers mm -hmm. yeah okay how i know this is an anecdotal question i'm not gonna ask you for actual data point didn't prep you but how many people on the island do you think are comfortably bilingual with English? I don't have the exact the exact number, um, but I will tell you. You know, Puerto Rico is 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 completely a fully uh, Spanish speaking uh, island. So, so English, we we got to we. We usually learn English since kindergarten through high school, even university courses, we, they teach English. And I think if you talk to them, like they can understand, everyone can understand English here, but we are a little bit afraid of speaking the language and also writing. So that's, but if you go to anyone around, they will understand what you're saying. And that's also another barrier for resources or for funding for preservation. A lot of uh, as as a U.S. territory, we can uh, apply for funding for grants for stuff, and and but you know the opportunities there out there are English. Um, yeah. So that's definitely language barrier is it prevents us for getting access to resources, but also the relationship with the U.S. also prevents us to get it other kind of funding because for example we got um 
other countries in Latin America, um, from the UNESCO, from Spain, that we would like to get resources and get um, people to come to Puerto Rico. But, you know, all our foreign relations are controlled by the U.S. So it's a little bit difficult and challenging to even sit down with an international community or regional community of preservation practitioners to tackle the issues that we are facing in Puerto Rico, which are really specific to Puerto Rico. We, we have to think that the problems that California are facing or Oklahoma or any other state are really different of what Puerto Rico is facing. And because not only by our cultural differences as you know, it's a Spanish speaking country, also I will say that Puerto Rico itself we see ourselves as a different nation than the U.S. That's another aspect. Our history is totally different than, than the U.S. In, in most part. You know, the yeah. U.S. came to Puerto Rico in 1898, and but for the for other 500 years, we were a colony in Spain. So our history sometimes gets intertwined with the history of the U.S. Not some, but also that economic context is different. Um, in Puerto Rico, the poverty rates are increasingly high, uh, access to resources for nonprofits, you know, the challenges and the crisis get overlap of, you know, it, it are like layers. And usually heritage is considered like at the last, is the bottom of the list of needs, you know, that we have to consider Puerto Rico. So it's a challenging. It's, it's challenging not only by the environmental and the climate change and everything that's happening, but also the socio-economical context of what Puerto Rico is and, you know, and the political issues that we face. Right. Yeah. And I know we've talked about it before, but, it, you know, after Hurricane Maria, there was funding coming in for some of the cultural heritage, but because of the bureaucratic complications with it being a territory, it just took years. Yeah. Uh, is it still in progress? Have you gotten some of the funding for it by now, or is it still in progress? No, no, and and Yikes. usually, yeah, yeah, and and usually we we had some colleagues from other islands around the Caribbean and from Latin America that they wanted to come into Puerto Rico, um, to you know to do some child salvage work, um, for heritage and everything. It, it was really difficult. For us, it was really difficult to navigate through U.S. ICOMOS, to navigate through the State Department. So, so it's complicated. And we, and obviously, the U.S. is so big that we are not, you know, in the in the first tops of the priorities for for the whole nation. And and you know, we can understand that. But you know, it's it's a complex situation when you can't address the needs of your own heritage or the needs of your own population because of this structural barriers that are in place because of, you know, economic and political issues. So, And I know you already mentioned the Virgin Islands. It's in a similar spot. And I know um, there's a preservation group out of Guam. Um, I'm not sure about Samoa or Marshall Islands. I think I think those are the five territories, although I might have missed one and I'll kick myself later. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, I bet they are 
sympathizing with the struggles that you have as well for all those reasons, you know, how to how to protect the heritage as a territory and with a history that's distinct from a lot of other contiguous U.S. history as well. It's a, yeah, <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. to chew on, a lot to chew on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so you've also mentioned partnerships and we have one. I think you're very great about working with a lot of different organizations on these partnerships. and. Yeah. Um, ours is towards uh, Spanish translations of curriculum. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've touched on some of it, but I, I'm wondering even for yourself, like I have my college roommate is or is half Colombian and she was pretty fluent in Spanish, but she went to med school and had to take just a course in technical language in Spanish because she wanted to be a bilingual doctor for people. but learning the technical language of medicine is beyond what most people learn as their fluence. So they just had a class in that. What was it like for you going to school and learning a lot of the technical language around conservation? You know, kind of to your Mm -hmm. point, you can be functionally Mm -hmm. fluent, but that's way different than being a specialty fluent. Yeah. 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 Um, It it was really challenging uh, for me. I mean, I receive a good education in Puerto Rico, at least the public university system is the best system, you know, island-wide. Um, but changing completely and getting to a new place like Philadelphia at the time, for me, was a little bit a cultural shock. And one of those... And, and yeah, a cultural and, shock for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 the thing is that we I, I had to navigate through through that, but also the language was definitely something that I really had to learn how to work, and and not only take I I remember I had to take courses outside of my traditional semester coursework. To just you know refine my skills in orthography, um, grammar. I have to you know I have to put a lot of effort on my papers to be reviewed just before the deadline. You know just to get through. Uh, so it's a, it was a, especially my first year at Penn was really challenging on, on learning a lot of 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 um, specific terminology how to think in you know in, in in other ways on how to put ideas in, in in a way that makes sense so uh it was definitely a challenge um for me um but i will tell you that this was really rewarding now i remember when i i was writing down my thesis in full english um i press of yeah yeah and, and i i i felt really comfortable doing it and I I can communicate that and that has allowed me to seek a specific partnerships and collaborations with you know other institutions and organizations in the US states right. um and obviously that's I think if the more you learn languages that's the better uh, I have in, in my life checklist I, I want to learn French I want to learn Italian so it opens doors for you, definitely. And for us in Puerto Rico, being able to dominate both languages, it's definitely a blessing because 
we're not only thinking about communicating with the with people in the states, but also we have other minor islands in the Caribbean which they speak English and French and Dutch. So so we have that opportunity also right. to communicate with other neighboring uh, islands in in the Caribbean, you know, and share experiences, stories, and and I think that's the importance of you know, yeah, dominated language. Well, as somebody who has partially learned about three different languages, I am very impressed at your level of uh, English fluency, particularly in the subject, and also very thankful that you are this fluent. Um, and I, just on a personal note, uh, I, I guess you could say I technically learned Spanish in elementary school, but the classes were truly awful and I did not learn a thing. I think I only remember Pantalonis. From it, and yeah. that's it. Yeah. Oh, well, and the instructor yelled rapido at me out all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <listen> rapido. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's practice, and everyone can. It is. I think everyone can learn. You just yeah. have to take be patient with yourself, and you know, yeah. and, and think. And, and now I, I will say, I I, it's interesting, but because half of my thoughts are in Spanish, but half of my thoughts are English. Oh, cool. Something. And sometimes I have to think about what I'm going to say. I, right. I should say it better in English, but I have to think about how to right. do it, to say it in Spanish. So it's it's complicated, right. but, you know, it shows how our, our brains are wired and they're, you know, right. Right. It's, it's another world. It's wonderful. But yeah. <laughs> well, I'll pull out some, some stats to you about our partnership and especially this language component, because... We have both talked about the push in preservation to become more inclusive and diverse. And my experience on job sites is that it is already diverse. Mm -hmm. And many of the people working on historic sites are, are first language is Spanish and primary language is Spanish. Um, mm -hmm. And very many non-white people working on these historic sites. Um, mm -hmm. There's not a lot of gender diversity. and that's like one of the areas. And so when we talked about it, it's like, it's not necessarily that we need to get more Spanish speakers on the site. It's that we need to make the certification and educational resources accessible to mm -hmm. them. Because many of it, like I were some very skillful Masons yeah. <laughs> from uh, Guatemala and uh, Mexico, and they definitely knew what they were doing. We don't need to, we don't need to train them. What we need mm -hmm. to do is, resources to show that they know what they're talking yeah. about and so you know the u.s has the second largest population of spanish speakers in the world with over 41 million native spanish speakers and about half of those or eight percent of the u.s population have limited english proficiency and then about a third of construction workers identify as spanish or latinx so you can maybe poorly align all that data, mm -hmm. but it shows that there's a very big component of construction workers whose primary language is Spanish. So yep. we've worked on translation <laughs> projects. We've gotten two grants to kick it off. Um, the Historic Preservation Education Foundation gave us a grant, as well as the Foundation for the Advancement and Conservation, um, because you're a member of the AIC. Yeah. The American Institute for Conservation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I was about to get the acronym wrong. Um, yes. So very excited about this project. 
um, obviously there's a need. And this is a really good example of how you're partnering with these different organizations across the country. But mm-hmm. I, I gave guess the intro to why we're doing it. Um, do you want to talk more about it and like what sure. you're doing and how you're going to be using it? Sure. So, um, and this is a conversation that I have, uh, I have put you know, across other organizations like APT, AIC. You know, we have a, a huge population, as you mentioned, the Spanish speakers in the construction world. Um, but as a student that came from Puerto Rico, and I didn't find a lot of resources, preservation resources available in Spanish. And for me, navigating through the preservation world as a newcomer was really difficult, you know, as a, as a native Spanish speaker. So I've been trying to push different organizations um, to translate some of the educational resources that they have to Spanish language. And mostly because not only uh, we need it in Puerto Rico, but also we understand that, you know, the huge amount of people that work in communities across the U.S. that are Spanish speaking. And, and, and sometimes they don't even get any kind of educational resources about preservation or you know, how to deal with a historic building, how to deal with historic materials, you know? And, and that's part of, 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 if we want to build an inclusive and diverse and equitable field, we need to start making, you know, this educational content accessible to different languages. And we have to acknowledge that the U.S., yeah, the majority of, the great majority speaks English, but we have other, uh, we have really, a really diverse population and, and, and that's, part you know as part of the world of the work that we need to do in the field to make it more diverse you know it's not the only thing but it's a small step you know in the path forward for that yeah and would this have been something when you went to UPenn that would have made you felt more supported um helped you out when you were there I know you said it was difficult at first and you're proud of where you came from but if there was a resource like this, would you have felt more included and more supported? So, I I I, rem- I think one of the good things from my time at Penn um, was that I wasn't alone. I have another one of my colleagues, friend Monica. She's also from Puerto Rico, so we were in the same class, and I had the chance and the blessing of navigating the whole grad school experience with her. Um, so there was a lot of support between both of us as Spanish speakers of, of you know, the, the assignments, the content, the readings. If I didn't understand something, she will explain. And that this was, that helped me a lot, you know, but I recognize that not a lot of Spanish speaking students that moved to the States to get education, their, you know, graduate level education have that opportunity so in my chance in my experience i was lucky um and part of the things that again i i think it's important to acknowledge that preservation and i saw that i saw that in pen i saw that in every meeting or conference that i attend you know the 
preservation field is not diverse. It's mostly composed of white people. And even though, and, and that also is a problem because it talks a little bit about what type of heritage we are considering heritage, what yep. is deemed to be preserved and what's not, you know, and, 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 you know, excluding people from the trades, excluding, excluding people from the actual preservation work, um, it's, it, it's difficult because it, it's a challenge first, but also it's problematic because we have the chance there of excluding histories that usually are not considered or not visible, you know, to everyone. Um, so in my sense, for me, I, I will tell you my experience, what that was my particular experience. And one of, I think one of my missions within the field is to start building up you know, that those small changes to make the field more accessible to other people. It's a great mission. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I want to talk first about affinity groups and then also what we can do to be good allies in that mission too. But for me and myself in Savannah, we've started up, you know, a women in trades group. It's very unofficial, but we get together once a month for a happy hour. And mm. that small little thing has been Great. huge and has helped a lot of us feel supported and able to talk about what we're going through and network. And it doesn't solve the problems, but it's a really good space. Um, and what you were talking to about having somebody with you going through the same thing and having that partner was also super helpful. So I know you're also a member of Latinos in Heritage Conservation, correct? And Is that the not not currently, but I I have I've you have been having a conversation with them, and they're okay. Their work they're doing right. is great. Yeah, yeah. So you know, groups like that I think can be a very powerful. Um, I play a very powerful role in this, in both getting more people into it and giving that space for people as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on something like that, um, affinity groups um, and their role in this? Well, well, um, I have a mixed feelings because, yeah, I under I really do understand that, you know, affinity groups are are something and 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 are and are really beneficial for, you know, quote and I quote always this minorities, because I, I I have I put that in question. If we are really a it's relative, <laughs> uh-huh. but it's yeah, it's really it's really helpful for us, to, you know, to just to get with people to you know that know that, that understand, and you have the, the support group. But also, I feel like, and from my perspective, coming from Puerto Rico, which is a totally social or cultural different context than the states, um. Our racial, you know, you know, you know, tensions are really different in Puerto Rico that you know, in the states that that's something. But looking at what you know, corporations, institutions are doing, like you know, setting up diversity and equity um, officers and policies and stuff, I feel sometimes that it's like just checking, just checking is is part of the checklist, you know. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it's not meaningful change. And I'm really worried about that. Um, how we 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 can do meaningful change? I believe it just putting the money where your mouth at. 
putting yeah. resources to live to live you know underrepresented voices putting money and human and educational resources to people that hasn't been on the forefront for decades you know or centuries and that's you know if you want to do meaningful change that's the way it, you know the way to do it not just having equity and diversity policies which are necessary but sometimes it needs to be supported by a more robust infrastructure of resources to reach diversity equity and inclusive and inclusive environment right. um so so that's at least my personal view of what is happening in the US and and yeah we still having the same racial tensions the same issues um you know the political context is not helping at all you know in solving any any of these issues but we have to be we have to be first strategic of how you know to to promote diversity in a meaningful way not only on papers and just for a slogan or a marketing campaign and and in and again putting resources you know uh, avail- available to, to be available for underrepresented people and i think that's crucial for you know to advance real and meaningful equity diversity and inclusion right and instead of minorities i liked what you said the underrepresented because that's more accurate to yeah mm-hmm. you know what's actually happening too mm-hmm. like i said on job sites it's pretty reflective of the us population but in admin in the decision making it's not reflective mm-hmm. so so the next point about being a good ally for this i think you and i got connected because we were introduced by some people, you know, um, kind of early on when I started my role and you started yours, some people introduced. And mm-hmm. my goals have been trying to get some resources behind this and listening mm-hmm. to what's needed and uh, getting more of those connections and seats at the table. But I guess a self-assessment to making it real. <laughs> you know, is that effective? Is there anything more different that... Uh, we can do, and I guess this is also a podcast, so people can't see me. I am white. <laughs> I am a woman, so I'm a minority or underrepresented in that aspect of construction. But I am white. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, what what more different can we be doing in this role to help support these goals and this mission? I think that's a complex question because there is so much going on. Um, there are different factors, different. For, and I will tell you, tell, tell you this, for example. Um, I navigate between the field of preservation, but also the field of art conservation. And for example, in the field of preservation, we have a lot of men, white men, uh, uh, working in constructions and engineers, architects, you know, and, you know, in trades. But on the other side, in the art conservation world, the vast majority of conservators are white women. Interesting. So, um, in those two different contexts, I'm a kind of a minor myself. I'm a minority, but you know, in, in different contexts, and I had to I, I had to learn how to navigate, you know, through both worlds. In, in sometimes, in, in, you know, sometimes, and 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 to consider how to to 
to work with them. Um, And that's why I say it's complex because not all the contexts are the same. The needs are different from every population. For example, I know I, I, I was really upset when I, I mean, from my time at Penn, I know I was, I, I was um, a Latino in the program with Monica, whatever. But in the whole School of Design, Winsman School of Design, there were like only seven to eight Black students. So we, so we, there are really big issues with the underrepresentation of African Americans within, you know, academia, within the, within the preservation field. And um, that I know there are amazing initiatives going on towards addressing that. You know, those gaps um but yeah how, how you how, how you work on on, diff, on those different levels you know and different contexts um so it's it's really a complex uh, question how and and again I, I will stick definitely with not only having people at the table in the you know in the table to make the table that to make the or in the decision making process but also, uh, I think listening to them, listening and to not only listening just to hear them, but also listening to understand what our different groups are saying, understand and be more empathetic with our lives, you know, and, and what we have been through, you know, as, as underrepresented people, groups. Um, I think that's really important, and obviously, I think compromise. There, there, there should not only hear them. Uh, it's not only about hearing people and appointing a diversity officer, no, no, but also what are compromises that we can get to do meaningful change. You know, actionable items. What are the deliverables from that compromise? And obviously, a commitment to you know, deliver for us. I think that's that's really important. Um, so if you have that mentality, um, that mindset, um, I think that will definitely work. All good things. <laughs> All good things. And I guess how that even translates to your work and what you're doing with Sencore, you have several training initiatives going on. Is that for Puerto Ricans exclusively? Is it in Spanish language? I know some people have expressed yeah. interest in the U.S. And I, I was wondering about the language with it, too. And, you know, can people come down there to train or support or teach mm-hmm. or help with projects? You know, how can people get involved with Sencor? Yeah. So our our projects are mainly, as you know, as, as, as we are native you know, Puerto Rican local organization. Um, our model is that we are embracing the regional conservation center model. So we we are starting small, we are getting bigger and we are developing our, our institution and our goal, you know, ultimate goal is to be a service facility for the Caribbean region, not only Puerto Rico. And um, we're doing actually collaborations with different organizations and even governments in the region 
uh, for example, with being assisted in the U.S. Virgin Islands with some of the work that they have done, uh, they, they're doing with a trade school that they're, they're trying to set there. Um, we're having conversation with uh, um, in Cuba with other organizations that they're doing like work and 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 practitioners that because we can learn a lot from them. But also having this partnership with established institutions or organizations in the U.S. that allows us to have that flexibility of sharing not only resources, but also giving people, especially young people in Puerto Rico, opportunities to get trained, to get their internships, to to do stuff, you know, and, and to become a professional in the preservation field. And that's something that we're really strongly support and we are trying to you know foster we we acknowledge that we don't have a, we don't have all the resources human resources or professional resources in Puerto Rico so we depend a lot from people to come to Puerto Rico work on capacity building initiatives so we can you know continue and and usually this heritage sector is like that in, in every you know in, in in Latin America in Africa in Europe Everywhere, you know, the, the the preservation and heritage field in general have been built for the past 76 decades, I will say six decades or eight decades on collaboration and sharing knowledge between practitioners from different parts of the world. And that's the way we are thinking about Sankor. We are a platform of collaboration, partnerships. We do projects with institutions and states with local institutions, how we connect them with services that they need to preserve and promote, you know, the protection of our heritage, but also um, how we structure um, any kind of educational uh, trainings uh, or opportunities for people from Puerto Rico to go out and get you know, and get trained. And, and eventually we want to foster also people coming into Puerto Rico to do that same. No, so so that's part of our vision. We're still small. Uh, we're I think we're in the good path to that. So we'll see how it goes in the, in the coming years. Yes, I love especially that last part. We talked with um, Kathy Rodriguez in San Antonio. They have the Living Heritage Trades Academy, and mm-hmm. they were talking with um, I think Preservation Maine about how to do an exchange program almost for some of their trade students. So how can the students at San Antonio go and work up in Maine for a couple of weeks and vice versa, because the environments are just so different and the building types are so different. I would love to get that set up just across the country, you know, then they yeah. can go to Puerto yeah. Rico and Puerto Rico can, you know, go to Montana or something. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that would be very cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, hopefully. And, and yeah, it, and again, considering our context is a little bit complicated because yeah. our heritage is different than from Montana and, you know, yeah. the terminology, the materials. So so it's, it's it's challenging, but we can work through that in terms of, of how to set up you know, training and collaborate. That, that's right. our goal. So, yeah. Right. And we can make it more relevant, but having a fun difference can also reveal like the whole spectrum of what you can work on too. And yeah, you know, Savannah, there's not log cabins and I worked with historic core out in Denver and mm-hmm. only got to work with a lot of log cabins. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just not something I ever would have gotten my hands on um, in Savannah. So I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities. Uh, if anybody listening feels like funding them, we're we're receptive. <laughs> Stay <laughs> with the translation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, Hector, to wrap up, let's. Uh, we have a few questions we like to ask each of the guests too. Do you have any favorite must-read trades books or preservation books or conservator books or podcasts? So, or- yeah, yeah. Well, I and and I love the English heritage. Um, Yes, books, set of books like the practical, the building conservation books. My God, I love them. And 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 for those who don't know, they can look it up in Amazon or you know, other other websites. There's a set of ten volume series of different you know topics: timber, plaster work, mortars, glass, um, concrete, and they're amazing. I mean, they show from the history, obviously, it's or UK based, you know, um, but they show a really good understanding and depth of not only the, the history of the materials, construction technologies, but also how to assess, repair, um, what are the considerations, even the legal aspects of, of how to wow. perform uh, preservation work. My dream is to have something like that for Puerto Rico in Spanish, Ooh. you know, and that, that's, that might take like maybe a couple of decades to get through. But definitely that's my, those are my to-go books, you know, and they're, they're really helped me out a lot as, a, you know, emerging practitioner at the university to learn more about. Um, also, I think the U.S. has something similar, which is our, the, the, preservation briefs of the National Park Service are definitely really helpful. Some, I think the majority of them are not updated and that's something like having a conversation with the folks at the National Park Service and they're really really pushing and trying to update them, but they're really helpful. You know, if you're an emerging practitioner and someone that is curious and wants to learn more about the technical aspects of preservation, there are, those are two of the main resources. Uh, I have other books that I can talk about, like, for example, Conserving Buildings from um, oh, Bernard Fielding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have uh, other books, for example, uh, the Tom Gester book about 20th century building materials. I love that book also. Yeah. Actually, he, he was my boss, so he signed me a copy of the book. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so those kind of right. books I really enjoy. I, I enjoy them because they you can learn so much from them. Yeah, and they're really basic. They, they're, they're in, the language is really basic and not they have a balance of highly technical stuff, but also something that you can understand. Um, and I can talk more about other more highly technical books of conservation, but for general audience, I will definitely. Right recommend those those are both really good primers and i can yeah. definitely attest to the preservation briefs they're great how-tos if you need to get started and publicly available um all right so if people want to learn more or find out more about you how can they do that where can they go so i'm on linkedin they can look at last name Verdecia um also you can go through 
our website, it's the Con Conservation Center Sencor, sencorpr.org.org. Uh, we are online and also on social media on X, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Sencor uh, PR, at Sencor PR. Um, and obviously in Spanish, it's Centro de Conservación y Restauración de Puerto Rico. Uh, but you can look at it and, and we are, and you can also subscribe to our newsletter. So we are publishing everything that we're doing, you know, events and stuff that's happening. It's only based, mostly based in Puerto Rico, but um, again, our, our, in the future, we want to expand and have more collaborative projects abroad. So. Yes. And we'll have links to those in the show notes as well as yeah. the preservation briefs and the, the building conservation books. So last question, what is your favorite historic place or historic site? I know. Like I will. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> I did. I didn't say this at the beginning. But the reason I end up in preservation is because I studied in, I think, most beautiful school in Puerto Rico. It's one of the biggest schools in the island. Uh, I think it's the biggest. Actually, it's a Spanish revival style building from 1924, and you know, for me, it's amazing. It's, it's this one. It's the Central High School. If you are curious about it, Central High School in Puerto Rico, Santurce. And um, that was my inspiration to work, you know, on history preservation, definitely. I spent my middle school, high school there learning. I saw the issues that the building itself faced, about deterioration, flooding, everything. And I... I think one of my dreams still is to just be involved in any kind of preservation project for that building in my future. Right. So that's my top choice. Is it in San Juan? Yeah, in Santurce. I, yeah. Okay. I think I found a photo of it. And if so, we'll share yeah. it. It has, and, uh, it has a, a full oh. column, columnade in the front. These yes. huge... Yeah. Um, columns in in the in front that is a beautiful beautiful building yeah is it is it this one can you see it yes yep okay uh we'll also put that in show notes because uh yeah that's beautiful <laughs> i can see why you got into preservation that yeah. is gorgeous oh my and uh and the ceilings are plaster work from 1920s you know the original uh roofs system is still in place it's really deteriorated because of the hurricanes and and a lot of and major part of the building is you know has a lot of integrity you know from 100 years from now so oh yeah um, so so yeah it's a really wonderful wonderful building you know the cross ventilation system the way it's assembled you know the materials it has Terrazzo from 1920s in the interior, so it's it's wonderful. Yeah, it. I love how this is you know impressive and inspiring historic structures can get people into it. I think mm -hmm. that's why we all have this story and why this question could be hard for some people. <laughs> yeah, 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 but yeah. That one, is, that's fantastic. You're lucky you got to go there. I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm personally jealous. 
Well, Hector, thank you so, so much for joining us. I know we've been talking about it for a while and it's just been very great to have you on and have people learn about what you're working on and Sencor and everything related to it. Wonderful. Thank you for having me and yeah, have a great weekend. <laughs> you as well. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.